wonder this time where she's gone wonder if she's gone to stay ain't no sunshine when she's gone and this house just ain't no home anytime she goes away and you're listening to Bill Withers singing Ain't No Sunshine from his 1971 debut album, Just As I Am. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now, from one of our favorite recurring segments, the story of a song, and this one, Grandma's Hands by Bill Withers. It was on the same record, didn't achieve quite the status that the other hits he made did, songs like Lean On Me, and songs like Just the Two of Us. These were chart toppers. But Grandma's Hands wasn't just Bill Withers' favorite song. It's my favorite Bill Withers song, too. And before we dig into the song and how it came to be, Bill Withers was born in 1938 in a tiny town, population 200 right now, in West Virginia, called Slab Fork. It's in the south-central part of the state, a coal mining town. Let's hear Bill Withers talk about life there. My family lived right beside this railroad track. And so all the white people lived on one side of the railroad track, and all the black people lived on the other side of the railroad track. Well, my mother bought a house that was just on the side that she wasn't supposed to buy it on. But it was, you know, just two houses, two families, you know, that were allowed over there. But when I was growing up, wherever I heard noise, that's where I went to play. And everybody called me little brother. In fact, my mother was looking for me on the side where all the white people lived once, and she was calling me by my name, and nobody said, no, we haven't seen him. Then she thought, well, maybe they, they called him. So they said, have you seen little brother? And said, oh, yeah, he's right over there. So um, there was always a certain interaction here. I think more so than most southern states. Indeed, he would go on to talk about the fact that black and whites went into those mines together and it was dangerous work. So just as soldiers bonded and race meant less in conflict, the same in the mines. And now let's hear an introduction by Bill Withers describing this song to whom it was dedicated, his grandma. Most of us at some point in our lives have somebody that means more to us than anybody else has ever meant before or will ever mean again. Sometimes it's a long-legged lady if you're a man or some tall, very smooth man if you're a woman. But in my case, I learned how to really love somebody from not a very pretty lady, not at that point in her life, not uh, sexy at all, but just a nice old lady who used some very nice old gnarled hands to make life kind of nice for me at that time when I really needed somebody. And it wasn't after I got older and started to look around for things. It was before I even knew what I was looking for. And probably since I consider myself somebody who writes primarily, out of all the... Uh, things that I might have written. My favorite thing that I've written has, has to be about this favorite old lady of mine. 
So here's Bill Withers singing his favorite song and mine. Grandma's hands clapped in church on Sunday morning. Grandma's hands played a tambourine so well. Grandma's hands used to issue out a warning. She'd say, Billy, don't you run so fast. Might fall on a piece of glass. Might be snakes there in that grass. Grandma's hands. Unwed mother, grandma's hand used to ache sometimes and swell. Grandma's hand used to lift her face and tell her she'd say, Baby, grandma, understand that you really love that man. Put yourself in Jesus' hands, grandma's hand. Grandma's hand. Hand me piece of candy, Grandma's hand. Pick me up each time I fell, Grandma's hand. Boy, they really came in a handy. She'd say, Matty, don't you whip that boy. What you wanna spank him for? He didn't drop no apple core, but I don't have Grandma anymore. If I get to heaven, I'll look for Grandma. And what a song, and what direct, simple lyrics. And my goodness, you're hearing the white and the black influences there in that music. You're hearing a bit of country, straight as an arrow, and yet that soul infusion and that backbeat and that voice. And only in America can music like this get created, folks, where different people from different places get together, and it all merges into a beautiful sound. Bill Withers, his story, the story of a song grandma's hands and by the way your favorite song we'll look into it we'll try and find out the story behind the song send your suggestions to ouramericannetwork.org grandma's hands and bill withers he was inducted into the hall of fame in 2015 and stevie wonder performed ain't no sunshine with withers on the stage you could tell it was the highlight of his life an award well earned bill withers the story of Grandma's Hands, the story of a song, here on Our American Stories. Sometimes in our lives We all have pain We all have sorrow But if we are wise We know that If I have 
is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything. And right now we're going to take you into the world of the NHL hockey enforcer. Players whose job it is to deter and respond to a dirty or violent play by opposing players. Simply said, this is a story about fighting in hockey. Here's Greg Hengler. All right, this song's about hockey. Fighting in hockey is not just tolerated, it's promoted, and it has been since the beginning. When legendary brawler Eddie Shore and his Boston Bruins played the Rangers at Madison Square Garden in 1925, wanted dead or alive posters were plastered all over the streets of New York with the image of Shore, or old blood and guts as he was known on them. Shore was one of the toughest, meanest hombres ever to lace him up. Included on his list of career injuries are nearly 1,000 stitches, 14 broken noses, 12 broken collarbones, and 5 broken jaws, not to mention a broken back and hip. It was written in 1939 of Shore, for 20 years, man and boy, this evil fellow has developed the role of villain to such an extent that professional wrestlers gnash their teeth with envy. Not much has changed since the days of Eddie Shore's old-time hockey. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It is one of the most disgusting, brutal parts of NHL hockey. They are the most feared players in the NHL, whose role isn't scoring goals, it's knocking out the opponent. They're enforcers, scouted, drafted, and put on the ice for one thing, to fight. Let's drop the puck on this story with opening remarks from one of the greatest enforcers in NHL history, Boston native Chris Knuckles Nylon. You know, probably 18,999 people in the stands out of the 19,000 at one time or another wherever they work, probably wanted to punch someone in the mouth. Whether it's their boss, someone they work with, somebody in competition with them. They never get to do it. But they like to see someone else do it. I still remember I was probably 12 or 13. We were at one of the stables and there was a couple of guys. It's like, oh, well, what are you going to do? You're going to be a vet like your dad? Being the 13-year-old still dreamer, I was like, no, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna play in the NHL. It's all you think about your whole life is playing in the NHL. There was a point that I realized that my skill set that I had, it was only gonna take me so far. Every league I went into, I was, I was always a little bit slower than most players, and I'd establish myself some way to stick in the league. Then I finally looked in the mirror and I was like, God, it's me. It's, it's my role. <laughs> so what is it about hockey that lends itself to fighting? And why does this not happen in equally violent sports such as football, rugby, and lacrosse? Here's hockey writer Stan Fischler. 
you trace the roots of hockey, it was a game that really grew up in a frontier atmosphere where there wasn't much policing. So if you got a referee and he misses a call and somebody gets whacked in the head, you're not going to dial 911 and wait for a cop to arrive. You're going to whack the guy back. And when one whack leads to another whack, then the sticks drop and then the fight happens. Here's former Boston Bruin, Bob Sweeney. Bruins, uh, in their heyday, the late 60s, early uh, 70s, really transformed hockey. Here's the Boston Herald's John Fitzgerald. If anybody ever put a glove on Bobby Orr, <laughs> wow. Here's hockey writer Ross Bernstein. As things would go on, of course, you saw the Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, who won cups in the, a pair of cups in the early 70s by using fighting as a tactic. Teams would get what they called the Philly flu, where guys would come down with mystery ailments the night before they had to play the Flyers. Uh, coach, I don't feel good. I'm sick. Yeah, because you don't want to lose any teeth tomorrow when you got to go against Schultz and Moose DuPont and all those other thugs. They would carry a tough guy in every line, and they would beat the crap out of you in every scrum. We're going to have a Donnybrook right down below us. The Broad Street Bullies created an arms race. Two years through the league, two championships, and everyone said, oh, this is how it's done? Everybody started finding the toughest dudes they could find, from Medicine Hat to Moncton to Moose Jaw, you name it. If you were tough and you could face one of those guys, you became a necessity. The enforcers became necessary. The enforcers became necessary, not only for the team's success, but also for allowing the most skilled players to do their thing. Here's former NHL enforcer Lyndon Byers. Over the blue line. Maddox gets it again and brings it right back in for Buffalo. Here's Maddox walking in on goal. He scores! The NHL is a game. It's beautiful. It's elegant. But it can be nasty. And if you don't have people that held other guys accountable, they're going to take liberties because they can. It's the only game in which you can't run out of bounds. And so there's a constant um, presence of people who would knock these finesse players off their pins. And you need guys to create room for those players. Nice move, another nice move! You score! What a goal! Left point, over to Blake. Blake beats it to Gretzky. Gretzky scores! If there wasn't a Marty McSorley, there wouldn't have been a Wayne Gretzky. McSorley allowed Gretzky to be Gretzky. That's what a tough guy does. Here's Marty McSorley. There was one night Doug Evans was playing for Winnipeg, and he speared Gretz, and it was probably the third or fourth time he tried to take liberties with Wayne Gretzky. And what I did is I hung down in their end, and I cross-checked him very, very hard, right across the chest, down on the ice. And when he was on the ice, I leaned down, and I really hit him hard almost to the point where it's like a computer screen when the light goes out. Now I got four games for it, but that can't happen on my watch. Here's Sports Illustrated's Michael Farber on what it's like being an enforcer. For a lot of fighters, there's a sinking feeling in their stomach because they know what faces them. It's like sitting in classroom all day, knowing when the bell rings three o'clock, you've got to go fight toughest kid in the school on the playground and everyone's going to be watching. Here's the greatest enforcer of all hockey enforcers, 
Bob Probert. The night before, it was tough sleeping. The night before a game, and knowing uh, that there was a battle coming. Here's Todd Ewan. I was never scared about being in a fight. I was scared about losing a fight. You lose one fight, and then you lose two, and they lose confidence in you, my career was over. Here's Terry O'Reilly. You start out as a young, frisky kid challenging all these famous scrappers, and you blink, and there you are. You're 10, 12 years into the league. You've had your shoulder fixed two or three times. You've broken your hand a couple of times. And there's a 20-year-old kid, and he's just foaming at the mouth when he looks at you. He wants to take you down. Although seen as a bad guy, the enforcer is a vigilante seeking to restore order and impart justice. Here's former referee Ron Asseltine and some of the NHL's finest enforcers defending their roles on the ice. They are having words at the edge of the circle. They drop the mitts right away. The refs have the ultimate control on what not gets called, but there's just some stuff that, that doesn't get called that's not going to that it's up to the enforcer to take care of. If something happens during the game, someone makes a cheap shot or runs your goalie. You know, a blindside hit, an elbow, a slash. The stick in the face, the cross check to the side of the neck, the slew footing where a guy gets his feet knocked out from underneath him and slams his back of his head on the ice. Those are the types of penalties that can result in, in mayhem, you know, and if, especially if they're missed. Because what's going to happen is if the players feel that we're not out there protecting them, then they're going to start to protect themselves. You're accountable no matter what you do. If you're going to sit there and spear someone and think that there's going to be no retribution or you're not going to have to answer the bell, you got another thing coming. I'll take that one guy and just use you know, his whole team as an example and just say, that one guy created this for every single one of you. So now you're all on my radar. Are they going to? And yes, they are. If I can't get you, I'm going to go to your best player and say, I'm going to break your leg because of him. And then they go, really? Really? And when we come back, more on hockey enforcers fighting for a dream. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're talking about hockey's enforcers here and for anybody who loves the sport well you're loving this and for any of you who don't and just sort of have any casual acquaintance with the sport which I did I went to a few ranger games when I lived in New York but I always wondered why all the fights and who are these guys well let's return to the storytelling and to Greg Hengler here we are talking about and continuing the story about hockey's enforcers some don't buy the rationale to have enforcers Here's Dr. Charles Tater, neurosurgeon, concussion, and brain injury expert. I, I don't buy it. I, I just don't feel that there's support for that theory. I think that if you follow the rules of the game, 
if the referee is enforcing the rules, if the league is enforcing the rules, you don't need enforcers to be the policemen for the league. The argument just doesn't hold. But sometimes one expert's opinion clashes with reality. Here's criminologist Dr. Victoria Silverwood and enforcer Derek Boogeyman Bugard. Statistics can't really tell you something because there's no control group. You know, there's no way of really analysing this. But some of the players that I interviewed um, have played in various European mainland teams where there's no fighting allowed. And then they've also played in the UK where it's very similar to North American style. They've explained to me that they actually think there's a lot more cheap shots going on in the leagues without an enforcer. You hear about guys, you know, North American players coming back for the summer and they just say it's a whole different game over there where, you know, guys aren't afraid to use their sticks, you know what I mean? Just because they don't, guys don't fight over there. You speak to skill players perhaps who've played in different teams and will say that they can relax a little bit more when there is an enforcer on the ice. Here's NHL All-Star Brett Hull. I'm just going to tell you right now, Brett Hull would not be the same player uh, that he was without... Guys like Kelly Chase and Tony Twist having his back. I can tell you that right now. Hockey's a chess game, and Wayne Gretzky was the grandmaster. But without enforcers, he wouldn't have had the head to think four plays ahead. You look at the greats and stuff like that, like even Gretzky. I mean, he had Samanko, and he was a madman. Could you imagine taking Samanko, McClellan, and McSorley away from the Oilers? What, what do you think Ray Gretzky would be? What do you think his head would be? Wayne Gretzky was a skinny 18-year-old, 19-year-old coming up, and people thought, even with WHA, he's going to get killed. I believe everyone was in accord that Wayne Gretzky should not be injured by some person uh, that didn't have the same ability as, as he did. A lot of times he'd have his back to you, and if you really wanted to just put him out of the game, it was there. One, I wouldn't do that to a guy. That's just not my personality. And I guess the other one might be that I would have to deal with the likes of, of Dave Semenko, Mark Messier, uh, Kevin McClellan, God knows how many other guys, because every one of the guys would have been, you know, wanting to hurt you. I mean, it wasn't really what I wanted to look forward to every time I played the Edmonton Oilers. Here's Semenko. I think sometimes I get more credit than I deserve for his career. Because he was a great, you know, the greatest player that ever played. Not only were they good enough to play on the ice with Wayne Gretzky, they were also good enough that he didn't want to go anywhere without them. So when Wayne Gretzky was traded to the Kings, Marty McSorley was part of the deal. Not because the Kings said, oh, please give us Marty McSorley, but because Wayne Gretzky said, I'm not going anywhere without Marty McSorley. Here's Marty McSorley. If Wayne Gretzky, nothing was to happen every time somebody hit him clean, people would have been looking to hit him clean three or four times every shift all year long. How is he ever going to stay healthy? If I don't go by the other team's bench and say, fellas, that's enough. That's enough. I'm not putting up with it. Fighting has been a part of the game since its inception. In fact... The first professional hockey game ever ended in a fight. Although the term enforcer didn't come into the league until the 1970s, 
players were protecting players all the way back into the 20s. But the start of the arms race began with Ed Snyder's 1967 expansion team nicknamed the Broad Street Bullies. Broad Street Bullies, the Philadelphia Flyers, were the ones that started this whole thing with intimidation and fighting. Broad Street Bullies were created because of the St. Louis Blues. They had taken advantage of them, and, and their owner had said, this isn't going to happen anymore. Mr. Snyder, the owner, said, you know, if we can't find all these superstars, these great skaters right away, but we can certainly find guys who can beat other guys up, because I do not want to see a Flyers team intimidated ever again. Teams in those days had, you know, you know, one or two tough guys that could do it, that could take care of the Flyers had like a seven of them. We'd go into cities and, you know, hot, seriously, headlines. Hide the women and children, here come the animals. I mean, at one point my mother read, you know, that said Dave Schultz should be kicked out of the league. The league hated him. You know, everybody hated him. The only people that loved him were Philadelphia and, and Ed Snyder. They went out there with that mentality that they were just gonna beat the shit out of anyone who stepped on the ice with them. And they did it, and they won. That advantage of that intimidation really helped them. At that time, they could do that and get away with it. What they did was make teams copy it. That's what it dovetailed right into the 80s as well. Like, even in the Wayne Gretzky era, in that high-flying 80s era, I mean, the Ranger Islander games would take three and a half hours. The Battle of Alberta would take three and a half hours. Do I even need to mention what Montreal and Quebec would do? Like, of those six teams, probably half the players should have been in prison for what happened on the ice uh, during some of those games. So there was like that, that, that uber violence through the 80s as well. Like anything, it, it, uh, it became a culture developed around it, um, for better and for worse. The evolution of training for enforcers has become much more skill-specific. Once upon a time, you just had to be tough and throw a lot of punches really quickly. Now NHL enforcers are training in boxing, wrestling, judo, jiu-jitsu, and more. Enforcer Scott Parker even adopted medieval workouts into his off-season training. I had some issues with the hands and you know, I almost had to pull them all of hands, like dishwasher's hands, you know, just soft. And I used to wrap my hands with these types of chains and then just go around and just whack trees and just try to beat my knuckles up as much as I possibly could. Then they start callousing it up and then you make them like leather. They can take a lot more abuse when you use them as hammers on people's faces. Recently, the NHL has cracked down dramatically on fighting and many fans have soured on what they now call an overly regulated game. As predicted, the NHL now resembles the European style of play that results in more injuries. The NHL's top players are paying the price. I watch the game now, and Sidney Crosby has been injured more times from hits and head injuries and knees in one year than Goretzky in a career. And when we come back, the final installment of this fascinating look at this unique game. Again, all this fighting doesn't happen in football. It does not happen in lacrosse, two other fairly violent sports. But in hockey, we're learning enforcers matter, their stories, their lives. The story of hockey in America here on Our American Stories continues 
after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue with this story about hockey's enforcers. Who are they? Why are they there? And why do some people think they need to be there? Let's continue with the story. I always compare hockey to life and business. It's very similar. If someone can get away with something in life or business, they're going to get away with it. Same with in hockey. If you penalize a player or even suspend a player, um, you might hurt that person in, in the pocketbook or hurt that person's team. But uh, if you're actually going to hurt the person, it's a way bigger deterrent than those other two things. Some people might not want to hear that, but uh, it is the major, major deterrent, and it's the ultimate deterrent. You can tell me till you're blue in the face that discipline and fining guys is going to work. Well, I already knew what the fine was for running Steve Eiserman in Detroit if I did it. It was Bob Probert and Joe Koser, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it in Edmonton. I didn't run at Wayne Gretzky in L.A. I didn't let guys on my team run at a great player because I was going to be a guy that inevitably was going to pay the price. And that was former NHL enforcer Kelly Chase. As enforcers, the toughest part of fighting is when they're not fighting. The enforcers in hockey have the toughest job in all of sport. The emotional part takes a toll more than the physical part. Going home and, and seeing your kids and having you know a pregame meal and a nap, thinking about this the whole day. I, I couldn't imagine anything harder than you know to, to wonder who you're gonna fight or if you're gonna have to fight at all. You're a kid, you know, the playground fight all lined up for you after school and you got to wait from lunchtime till 3.30 for that bell to ring. That's how it feels. Right up to the moment of the fight, your heart is beating right through your jersey and the longer you sit, the worse it gets. As soon as you grab on and you're engaged in that fight, all that goes out the window. Everything that you've thought of, everything that's surrounding you, it just goes out the window and you don't hear anything. It's the most bizarre thing. I can't really hear anything, like it's, you know, it's like the silence comes over. I don't think that thought of that fight ever goes away until it happens. And then once it does, you're thinking about the next one. So it's, uh, it's a constant uh, struggle and balancing emotions and, and, and energy the right way. 
it's a lot more emotional and uh, wearing on uh, on that player, on those people, than what people uh, think of it as. The fights also take an emotional toll on family members, the wives especially. Here's Megan Westgarth and husband Kevin. It's scary when you're kind of watching the fight and then you see, you know, the ref immediately kind of over him motioning for medical staff to come onto the ice. I remember seeing my wife first after and it was basically like, I, like I'm so sorry. Just a feeling to know that I'd gotten beat and to know that, you know, the people that care about me most, like, had to see it. I would definitely say that that was one of the tougher things that being the wife of an enforcer that I've had to go through with him is just watching him go through that. Mark LaFord spent 14 years as an enforcer in the NHL, but after being drafted, it didn't take long for him to regret his role as a tough guy. Once I got to about 20, then I started, then it dawned on me, I, I went, hmm, I'm going to have to, if I do this, I'm going to have to do this for the next 10, 15 years, every single day. It's no life. I'm older now, my career's done, so I can actually tell the truth. I've never met a guy who's ever liked to fight. If you, uh, if you get a chance, go to some NHL teams and sit down alone, and uh, if they're anonymous, they'll tell you the truth. But if they know their names are going to be used, they can't say they, they hate fighting, they'll lose their jobs. But I've never met a guy one-on-one when uh, the game wasn't around that enjoyed fighting. The enforcer stereotype is that they're goons. This guy is a goon. If you haven't seen the movie, you don't have to bother. This is a goon. It's Scott Parker with that goatee, Steve Conroy. It looks like he's just been released on a weekend furlough. <laughs> looks like he could own a Harley and a leather jacket and everything else. Calling a hockey player a goon implies that the player has no ability to think or put the puck in the net. Behavior expert Howard Bloom strongly disagrees. Is there a virtue that's overlooked by those who look at hockey? You bet. But you don't know it until you step into the dressing room and interview one of these guys. You think that this guy is a monster. You think he has no compunctions about breaking arms, breaking legs, smashing out teeth. You think he's merciless, that that he should be exterminated. He's a cockroach in the game. And then you sit down with him and discover that he has the most magnificent set of ethics and morals you have ever seen in your life. In pursuing the question of the enforcer, you're pursuing the question of what it is to be human. What does the enforcer call on? Profound loyalty. Loyalty so deep that he's willing to risk his own structure, his own body, his own bones, his own teeth, his own brain on behalf of protecting people he deeply loves. The enforcer is the most ethical and moral member of the tribe because he is willing to undergo such incredible sacrifice. That's looking at it from the inside of the group. Looking at it from the outside of the group, the enforcer is the ultimate enemy, the super bad guy, and must be eliminated. But that's because you and I are looking at it from the point of view of another group. If we were looking at it from within the group that the enforcer defends, we would love the enforcer because the enforcer loves every single one of us so much. He is willing to give his life for us. And within the DNA of an enforcer's moral compass lies what is called the code. The code is the fighter's etiquette. Here's what it sounds like before fighting NHL heavyweight champ enforcer and, as you will hear, 
all-around nice guy, George LaRock. You want to? Okay. Squirrel? Okay, good luck, man. Let's go, he says. That's unbelievable. Hockey's a strange mixture of grace and disgrace, depending on your morals and ethics. That is where the code comes in to protect and serve no matter what. The code is an unwritten set of rules, the Bible of hockey sportsmanship, if you will, that has been handed down from generation to generation. How does etiquette come out of the chaos of hockey. It's got to sound so odd and just crazy to be so civil when you're, you know, being so violent. The first one that comes to mind is that, you know, when a player goes down to the ice, you try not to punch their head through the ice. You never jumped somebody from behind. You never sucker punched anybody. No biting, no eye gouging, uh, simple things like that. If you know the opponent's uh, injured where he can't fight, out of respect, you just kind of like let him be. Or if that guy had just gotten called up, instead of coming up and whacking you, spearing you, says, hey, you know, if I don't do it tonight, then I'm going to get sent down. And you're like, I got you, kid. There's many a times that uh, a, a heavyweight would come over and say, we're going to go now. And I'd say, how about the start of next period? I, I'm just at the end of the shift. I'm done. And you're the biggest guy on the team right now, and I'd rather be ready. So we'll be fighting in the second period, not right now. Okay, sounds good. Sometimes even before the lines are getting, you're tapping each other on the back and saying good fight, and you skate off. And there's been an, a number of times where I've, you know, got punched in the face, punched people in the face, and later that night have been had a beer with them. It's almost like two warriors sort of looking, looking back at their careers and saying, hey, you know what, we made it out the other side, and forever they'll have this sort of unspoken bond. The bond that enforcers share is deep and is consistent throughout generations of hockey players. The old school enforcers like Dave the Hammer Schultz to recent guys like Brian McGratton and Scott Parker. Although they may agree with Mark LaForge that they did not like to fight, the privilege of playing in the NHL and being able to fulfill that childhood dream was worth the affliction. If someone told me, if you go out and you fight 200 plus times and you're going to be beat up, your shoulders are going to be surgically repaired, you're going to break your nose, your knuckles, but in the end of the day, you're going to play a game in the NHL, easy. Wouldn't do it any other way. I wouldn't change a thing. I got to play in the NHL for 10 years. And that's pretty cool for me. If I could turn back time, I'd put skates on right now and go. I, I, I'd do it. I'd loved it. If you could, would you do it all over again? Oh. <sighs> With a little more fire. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And that's what we try and do here, take you everywhere that you can't get to yourself. And uh, 
A little bit more of an explanation of why there's so much fighting in hockey. There's less now than there used to be. More rules, more enforcement. We wanted to hear from the fighters themselves. Out of the way, unvarnished, our opinions out of it. No one really cares about our opinions anyway. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. These enforcers' stories. Alison Krauss, and it breaks our heart to end a song before it's over when Alison Krauss is singing just about anything. She's just that good. And we tell stories about everything here on the show. We love music. But we also tell stories about life and death, and particularly death, uh, and not in a morbid or terrible way or a tragic way. Uh, what comes to mind is Arnold Palmer's funeral, which launched our Final Thought series. And my goodness, the funeral eulogies were just spectacular. What comes to mind most is Jack Nicholas sharing his thoughts about his pal. And it made everyone laugh, and it made everyone cry. And then Vince Gill stepped up, and he just made everyone cry, singing Go Rest High Up on That Mountain, which it turned out was Arnold Palmer's favorite song, and so many of ours. Well, this next story is about Peter Panagore, and he was a college student ice climbing in Canada on his spring break when a near-death experience transformed him and his faith forever. This is his story. A month after my 21st birthday, I traveled from Montana up to Alberta, Canada to ice climb on a world-famous ice pitch. At 8 o'clock that night, the temperature dropped drastically. Since we had no equipment to keep ourselves warm, our best bet for survival was to try to get off the mountain. It was 150 feet down, and we were held in the air on this overhang to a large area. We were stuck, and I was cold, though, and I'd never been that cold, and I had frostbite on my fingertips and my nose and my toes and my cheeks and my chin, and, and I had hypothermia. And, and, and then I, I fell asleep. And, and, and only this time, I didn't lose consciousness, but I knew that I had fallen asleep. And, and, and I felt myself being sucked out of my core like a vacuum. And I resisted with all this strength that I had, that I had built up through the survival 
journey that I was on, and I tried to stay in my body, and I couldn't. It, it irresistibly pulled me out, and I died. And I found myself in a great dark void, infinite, without a body, but with full consciousness, like a, like a, a sphere of, of consciousness. And, and in front of me, if I had a front, was this gigantic door. And the door was 30 yards wide and 70 yards tall. And it was a, the proverbial tunnel that people talk about was through this gateway. And I said, am I dead? And the voice of God with no voice and no language said to me, yes, you're dead. And I said, but I haven't gone through the door yet. And, and the voice of God said, no, you haven't. I said, well, do I have to go through the door? I have this sister, you see, that left our family and broke my mother's heart. And I didn't want to break my mom's heart again. And die and leave them. And God said and showed me, showed me, he said, the, the love with which I love you now, I have always loved you. And that same love that I love you with now, I love your family. And I love each person on earth with this fullness of love and forgiveness and knowing and mercy that you feel right now and beauty. And all will be well. And your family will be okay. And the next thing I knew, I was being screwed back into my body like, a, like an ice screw that you use to put into the ice to hang on. And it was painful and it hurt. And I got driven into my body from my stomach. And I, I came to and my partner, Tim, had me by the shoulder. And he was, he was screaming at me, don't die. Don't leave me here. And uh, I kept my mouth shut about what had happened for close to 20 years. And now I'm telling this story because what it's left me with is that I know that I'm known and I know that I'm beloved and I know that you are too and everybody is. And I know that this is not the end of life, that this is just the passage through to real life. And it's this long, and that's how much time we have till we get to go home. And I'm waiting to go home. I pray for it every day. I can't wait. That's my story. And that is Peter Panagore. And again, he was a college student when this happened. But my goodness, it's still with him. And by the way, we don't shy away from these stories, as you well know. When somebody's got a faith story to tell, we tell it. When they don't, we don't. But we don't edit them out. You're too smart for that, and you're too good and decent for that. And this is a country founded on faith. And the choice is to not choose faith if you don't want to. Freedom of conscience and free will. That's what are the foundational pillars of this great country. And, of course, for so many of us, a belief in God. Peter Panagor's story here on Our American Stories. And if you have stories, end-of-life stories, near-death experiences, and eulogies, which we adore here on this show, because in the end, it's life, and it's a biography, 
and it reminds us that one day we're all going to die. And what will that eulogy sound like? What will yours sound like? If you've got a beautiful one about a loved one, we'd love to hear it. Send it to us. We'll produce it. If there's one about somebody that we should know about, send it to us at ouramericannetwork.org. Again, Peter Panagor's story, his near-death and death experience, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our story of the song series. We love to bring you these stories behind songs you know, but whose stories you don't. Gimme Shelter, George on My Mind, Light My Fire, White Christmas, just a few, and also The Little Drummer Boy and Peace on Earth and how Bing and Bowie came to do that song. And today we want to bring you, though, a story of a song you likely don't know. We don't do a lot of those, but every once in a while the story's so damn good We've got to tell it. And today's story is brought to us by our own Alex Cortez. It's a song that shouldn't exist if some people had their way. And if not for one man who had a different opinion from them about how the history should be written. Alex Binius Harris, the co-writer of the song, had a relatively normal life in America. He knew that his grandmother didn't in another country, but no more than that. Growing up, I never knew about her history. I was born in Krakow, Poland. And I think it was a very good decision to leave me unaware of this. I remember my first grade teacher's name, and it was Mrs. Jablonska, which meant apple. (laughs) He didn't know that she shouldn't be alive. I remember saying to my mother, I will never learn how to read, (laughs) but I did. (laughs) And therefore, that he shouldn't be alive. I remember reading James Fenimore Cooper, you know, The Last of the Mohicans. I couldn't imagine what it was like to be a Native American. (laughs) And thus, no song. Life was kind of nice, till the war. But this would change. He knew that I was a survivor, but he didn't really know the whole story. Alex grew up in Washington, D.C., and would visit his grandmother in Southern California. And when he got into the University of Southern California, USC, and was finally physically close to her, she finally not only told him the whole story, she 
showed him it. Jews tend to be survivors. <laughs> By chance, at his university, of the over 4,000 universities in the world, there was an archive, the archive, for stories that were like hers. I remember they closed all the bank accounts, you know, Jewish bank accounts were closed, so my parents couldn't withdraw any money. And he was moved enough by her story that he decided to go beyond her story to promote the other stories that were there. He decided to intern there at the USC Shoah Foundation. Here's what he heard. Just prior to the war and at the beginning of the war, there was a heightened feeling of uh, something is going to happen. And people used to congregate in the courtyard of the uh, apartment building and talk about war and uh, feeling that uh, if, something, if, if things were going to happen, things weren't going to be so good for the Jews. As a child, no, I, I don't think that I felt any anti-Semitism. I really wouldn't have known what that was. She would. Oh, the older people were concerned and talked in hushed tones, you know, and listened to the uh, foreign broadcasts on the uh, radio. Hostilities have been going on since early this morning along the frontiers between Germany and Poland. When war broke out... World War II. Germany has invaded Poland bombs started falling. But of course, right away, the schools were closed, and so our lives really changed. I had just received, just prior to that, a puppy. And one of the first things that I had to part with, painfully, was to give up my dog to a shelter because my parents felt that couldn't take care of it with the war approaching. And I distinctly remember having to take him to a shelter. You know, I was only about uh, eight years old. The German invasion of Poland happened on September 1st, 1939, and immediately some of their closest neighbors, formerly a motley crew of every type of Pole, came to the courtyard looking more uniform. They appeared with armbands sporting swastikas, they turned out to have been fifth columnists. So it was really uh, kind of an incredible feeling to realize that you've been trusting people and, and, and telling them your feelings and your attitudes. And they were sympathizers of the Nazis or of the Germans at the time, you know. I don't think we really fully realized what Nazism was till it hit us later. At that time, we just talked about Germany invading Poland. My father, of course, left right away. I mean, all the men, as soon as uh, war broke out, all the men went east, you know, on a long march, sort of running away. So all the women were left in the building uh, then my father came back, fortunately, but there was this incredible fear, you know, not knowing what was happening to my father. And I could sense that, I could feel it, I could see it in my mother. That was the beginning of it, you know. I was just kind of totally unsettled life. And by winter, her father was back. 
they moved us into what used to be the Jewish section of town. Actually, they moved us twice, you know, they, the ghetto kept shrinking. <laughs> uh, so that, at first it was a much larger and then uh, the, it shrank some more and shrank some more. We were squished together in a tight place, but there were lots of other children. We didn't have school, so there was more time to play. It wasn't so bad. I mean, for a child, for the grown-ups, it must have been terrible. When I think about it, now that I'm a parent, you know, uh, it must have been hard. Her parents both worked at a factory owned by a gentleman named Julius Madrich, who wasn't Jewish. The Nazis forcing them to leave their little girl to fend for herself most of the day. Just sort of hung around, really. I was all alone, really. And then as things progressed and got worse and worse in the ghetto, it became evident that, at least for my parents, that the best thing would be for me to go out with them to work. My parents were able to get to fake my age, make it two years older, to allow me to go out of the ghetto with them. She was only nine years old, pretending to be 11. And I was then started working on a sewing machine. And in 1943, the Jewish ghetto that they were in... Closed completely. That was the last selection. One day, they came in, and the German, well, I don't know whether they were SS or, or soldiers or whoever, took some of the children and absolutely knocked their heads on the walls. They swung them by the legs and killed them that way. It was a horrible experience. We all saw it. They were transported to Plashov, which became a labor camp. At first, it was a labor camp. Then it became a concentration camp. I was afraid. The overwhelming emotion that has uh, probably ruled my life has been fear, fear of authority and fear in general. And after the break, we're going to continue with Selena Benitez's gut-wrenching story. And by the way, we love bringing you the hard ones like we promised. They're not always upbeat. There's a tremendous ending to this one, though. And America plays a centrifugal part in the ending, as it did for so many who suffered at the hands of Nazis throughout Europe. And by the way, we're also going to bring you the story of the sun, and of course, the story of that song. And again, usually our stories of the song are about songs you know and love, but this is a story of a song you don't know, but you should. And that's why we're bringing it to you. Selena Benitez's story, so many people trapped by Nazism. Their story, too, in a way. Her son's story, her grandson's story, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue now with Alex's story on Selena Binias, a survivor of the Holocaust. Every day, Selena and her parents walked 90 minutes from the Plashev labor camp to the Madrich factory where they worked and 90 minutes back at night. We were not as fortunate as uh, the Schindler people who were able to stay and live at the factory. Selena is referencing Oscar Schindler, whom Steven Spielberg's award-winning movie Schindler's List is about, and who also had a factory and through his friendship with the Nazis was able to convince them that his workers would be more productive if they avoided the walk and lived at the factory. You know that plush of the camp was made originally on the Jewish cemetery. So they crushed the stones. So we walked every day over people's names, you know. So that was kind of humiliating too, especially to people who had, you know, relatives buried at that cemetery. And then once the camp became a concentration camp, uh, we no longer could go out. And so Madrich established his factory in the camp. And in the concentration camp, they separated her father from Selena and her mother. And she saw things too. I witnessed a couple hangings of, of young boys. He happened to have sung a song or something. And they, you know, they hung him for that. But their boss, Julius Madrich, would never do such a thing. Madrich was a wonderful person. He was somehow just got caught. You know, there were a lot of Germans and Austrians who were caught in the situation, uh, none of their doing really, and they did the best they could. They did bring in food for us. Uh, Madrich brought in medications, very decent people. Then, in January 1945, the Nazis realized that the Soviets were approaching Krakow and they completely dismantled Plashev. All bodies that had previously been buried in mass graves were exhumed and burned on site. By the 20th of the month, the Soviets arrived and found only a barren patch of land. All of the remaining prisoners had been sent to Auschwitz, including Selena. The men were shipped earlier, and the women were then shipped in the cattle cars, and it took some time. We didn't really realize that we were getting going to Auschwitz till we arrived there in the middle of the night, and they emptied out the cars, and we saw where we were, and it was a very frightening experience. Auschwitz was the most infamous of concentration camps and the largest one where 74% of the prisoners there were Jews and 87% of the Jews there were slaughtered. In total, 1.1 million fellow human beings were slaughtered. Fear, smell, burning flesh, shouting orders, uh, 
not knowing which way to music being played slush on on you know on on the mud on the on the road you know the germans barking at us get out get out get out uh, you know from the cattle cars finding ourselves on this and realizing where we were and you know the fear that uh, that was the end you know The first place they took us to, they walked us into the uh, sauna, which is supposedly the, the, the lousing room or whatever. But uh, we at that point already had heard what happened in Auschwitz. So when they told us to strip and take our clothes off and they shaved our heads and all that, and they shoved us into the, the shower room, you know, we didn't know what to expect, you know, uh, whether we were going to have the gas or whether we were going to have actual water. It was, a, it was a horrible experience, you know. When the water finally came, it was just like, we couldn't believe it. And then, the one single time that she was separated from her mother, all of these years in concentration camps, the angel of death, Dr. Joseph Mengele, selected their barrack for what they called a selection. Selected to run through the gas chamber. Her mother was out working, and Selena, then 12 years of age, was to face death alone. We were told to strip and walk through, and on the first run through, uh, Ms. Dr. Mengele pushed me to the left side with some of the older women. And then I don't know what happened. He had a change of heart and told everybody to go through again. And when we went through again, I just, I don't know how I got the nerve, but I looked up at him and I said three words in German, lassen Sie mich. Let me go. And he let me go. He let me go to the right. And I ran out like crazy, you know, clutching my clothes in my hands in the nude. My mother returned and found out that the barrack had been taken for selection, and she was frantic, absolutely frantic. I remember having run out from the selection and my mother returning and running up and down looking for me. I mean, she was absolutely frantic. And the suspense would continue. They lined us up again and told us they were going to tattoo us, tattoo our number on us. And, at the, and I was even asking my mother, is it going to hurt? Is it going to hurt? And then all of a sudden, they shoved us into the cars. Rail cars. And we went off without the tattoos. We couldn't, you know, everything was just, everything happened. Uh, and you didn't understand why. Well, this time, there was a good reason why. They were on the rail car because they were on the list. When we got to to Brindnitz, you know, and Schindler came to the uh, to the station to pick us up, and you know, to the railroad station, we couldn't believe that we actually made it. Made it to likely freedom, hopefully. Soon enough, 1,200 Jews were on Schindler's list. 
and many often think that all of them were his factory workers, but 200 of them weren't, including Selena and her mom. Schindler came to Madrid and made him a proposition and said, you know, I'm taking my people to Czechoslovakia. Why don't you re-establish a factory in Czechoslovakia? And Madrid said he didn't want to. He had had enough of the whole thing. But Schindler said to him, well, then I'm making a list of people that I'm taking with me. And I am, because you're, we're friends, I want you to give me some names from your people. And that's how we got on the list. It took Schindler a while to bribe enough people to get them out of Auschwitz and at great personal risk to himself, having already been arrested three times. But get them, he did. And after the break, the final portion of this remarkable story of a song. And up next, the song part. This is Our American Stories. stories and now we return to this remarkable story of a song and it's a story about so much more as you can tell but now the song part back to alex now we know why selena is alive why her grandson alex benius harris is alive and why there is a song that can have a story about it in May of 2014, the USC Show Foundation hosted the Ambassadors for Humanity Gala. And my grandmother, on behalf of the Jewish survivors community, was asked to speak. And the award recipient for that year of the Ambassador for Humanity was uh, the President of the United States, Barack Obama. I would have never believed that uh, my experiences would ever be written up in a f- fabulous book or that this incredible movie would be made, Schindler's List or that I would ever be talking to a huge audience like that in the presence of the President of the United States. When Steven Spielberg was considering Liam Neeson for the lead role of Oscar Schindler, there was a concern that the star was too attractive to play the part in such a serious movie. So one of the studio's executives made a call, a call to his mother of all people to get her advice. And she said, Mr. Schindler was very handsome. So he gets the job and this mother would know it was Selena. How extraordinarily improbable 
or some might say probable, through providence. And for Alex's part, when he interned at the USC Shoah Foundation, there was another intern there who was also passionate about music. I'm a senior studying neuroscience and piano performance at the University of Southern California. I started playing piano at a very young age, at four and a half. So it's always been with me. Music and neuroscience, there's definitely a lot of overlap. The way that music makes people feel interests me very much. I really would love to study more about why music can bring people to tears, for example. You're listening to Ambrose Sohn. And Ambrose and Alex noticed that there was a surprising amount of music in the USC Shoah Foundation's archive, including melodies that survivors had written while they were at Auschwitz. And they decided that they could compose a song out of it on the piano. One of the first melodies that we encountered um, was from an Italian Jewish survivor. Her name was Lucia Mato. And she uh, used a traditional Yiddish melody, but set her own text to it. Qui in questa terra triste maledetta soffrono Molti figli di Israel. Now, from Lucia's melody, we wanted to use something in the context of pre-Holocaust Europe. And for people like Lucia, life was probably good. And we thought, in the context of a dance, with people enjoying themselves and laughing, that the waltz was a great way of conveying this emotion. So I uh, started by writing the first movement, uh, which um, is titled Exodus. And uh, it represents how um, just normal people living their daily lives were basically ripped away from everything they knew and sent to Auschwitz in this very forceful manner. To convey in a musical way what people would have felt as they walked off the train once it arrived at Auschwitz, that sinking, crushing feeling of seeing the most horrendous sight in front of you, having your loved ones just torn away, we decided to directly represent that on the keys by walking down from high to low. second movement I entitled Ashes to Earth. It represents the visual image of inmates arriving at the camp and seeing ashes as they come in billowing out of the chimneys of the crematoria. It had to represent something that was cyclical. This wasn't just a one-time thing, this was constant. The last movement was more of a collaborative ending because it grew organically and we entitled it Inner Refractions. The reason that we chose Inner Refractions was that survivors left the camp a little bit hollowed out and they had to re 
conceptualize the world and what it meant to them. And so these refractions are meant to be sort of hollow ghosts, and the ghost exists within all survivors and within the camp as well. And this song of theirs was not just their song, it was the song to be performed by them on January 27th, 2015 at the 70th anniversary event, remembering the liberation of Auschwitz. In a few years time, our generation won't have any direct access to survivors who actually lived through that experience. The moment we found out uh, we were going to be traveling to Poland to perform this piece, um, we were understandably pretty excited. And it was an incredible feeling knowing that the work paid off and that we'd have this chance to play for survivors. 100 survivors to be exact, including Grandma taking in Alex's and Ambrose's music about them. We were looking over the plans of how the stage was going to be set up and everything like that. And we quickly realized that uh, the stage was not going to be able to support the weight of two full grand pianos. And told to uh, basically reduce our entire two piano suite um, into a one piano work for four hands. We were going to have to do a lot of rewriting and condensing in order to, to delineate the parts so that we weren't constantly uh, jutting into each other. And we were changing the piece up until the hours before the performance. Through the whole condensing process, the, the piece matured in a way that um, it really couldn't have if we hadn't been told that we had a week to kind of rewrite the entire thing for one piano. That's the moment when it hits you like, this is real life, this is happening. When they tell you, you're on in five seconds. Music is really the one true universal language in that across all boundaries, across all cultures and language, we will all be able to understand these melodies and interpret it in the way that we'd like. Music has that ability to keep life going. And I think it's our duty as young people to educate other young people about the ills of genocide. We, the survivors, who are now in our 80s and 90s, have definitely passed the torch to the new generation. And so it's important to raise awareness about uh, what happened and to keep fresh in our memories that this type of thing could happen again. The fact that we were able to contribute to that message in such a personal way through music is really incredible. And I was glad that he had that experience. In terms of listening to him play, that was fantastic. I mean, every grandmother would love to have a grandson play. She said, I'm a proud grandma today. But I knew for her that it was so emotional coming back to this awful place. And I could feel it 
even though I know that a lot of these emotions she had wrapped up for a long time after the war. She was finally able to let all the ghosts go away. Out of the ashes of Auschwitz, there is a new generation. What a story. And thanks to our friend Susan Crown for putting us onto the USC Shoah Foundation. You can watch these video testimonies on their website, sfi.usc.edu. That's sfi.usc.edu. And Selena Biniaz's story, her grandson Alex's story, the transcendent music that he wrote in honor of all who suffered at the hands of the Nazis during the Holocaust. This is Lee Habib. Their stories here on Our American Stories.